Turb Alpern, the two on the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraph Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraph's Dave Cameron. And in what follows, uh, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Plenty to analyze this week on account of all of the Major League Baseball transactions that have occurred. Atlanta, for example, has signed Nick Markakis to a four-year contract. The New York Yankees uh, also have signed a player to a four-year contract. That is left-hand relief pitcher Andrew Miller. Cleveland has traded a 24-year-old double-A middle infielder for Brandon Moss. That's a thing that's happened. And neither last nor least, the Chicago Cubs have re-signed Jason Hamill. They've re-signed Jason Hamill to a two-year contract, a move that, unlike other uh, recent free agent signings of pitchers, might herald their intent to contend in the National League Central. I think the Cubs are, are shifting their model, and we see them pursuing John Lester as a free agent. And uh, if they lose out on Lester, I wouldn't be surprised if they you know, turn their attention to maybe James Shields or Max Scherzer. I think they're going to go after a, a big-name pitcher uh, to front their rotation uh, because they're trying to move their timeline up. And I think this is one of the interesting things we've seen in baseball the last couple of years. Nobody wants to lose anymore. This Fangraphs Audio features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Because, for example, I believe a, a thing that has just happened uh, within the last couple hours is um, is Oakland uh, Oakland trading with Cleveland. Yes, the Brandon Moss Joey Wendell trade that was uh, basically rumored for the last week. Right, and uh, I guess it's been wait, is it just a straight one for one then? Is that the? It idea? is. Yeah, it's one, one for one. The uh, Indians pick up. Uh, Moss, and we'll pay him roughly $7 million in arbitration next year. Uh, the A's already had a decent amount of uh, left-handed first base DH maybe outfield types, so they kind of uh, dump Moss for a guy who I'm guessing you will like, uh, yeah. Joey Wendell, and probably no one else. Okay, so so here's a... Wait, wait. They they got him for no one else, or no one else will like him besides me. No one else. Will, no one else will like him. He they basically acquired a member of the fringe five. Right. So uh, here's a here's a question. Right. And I and I think that I don't know if this is more of a clue, but we've discussed this perhaps with the the Hayward Shelby Miller trade, right? Where it's not really it's not really a question of asking yourself uh, is this player better than the other. Uh, you have to look at the the production that player will provide relative to the contract uh, to, right. get, to get a better sense of the motives here. Uh, uh, I, I would say just in a vacuum, Brandon Moss for Joey Wendell doesn't necessarily seem to be an even trade, but I'm assuming that there's something more to that seeing as Billy Bean and et cetera, intelligent people. Yeah, that seems to be uh, an open question now with some people after their offseason moves. I mean, I don't think that, you know, the A's got stupid, but they are certainly having a a curious offseason. Uh, I think if you were to look at Billy Butler and Brandon Moss side by side, uh, besides the fact that Billy Butler is right-handed and a little bit younger, you wouldn't see a demonstrable difference between the two. They're pretty similar players. Butler makes more contact but has less power. You know, is more of a limited defensive player where Moss can maybe play the outfield. Uh, and the A's gave $30 million to Billy Butler to replace Brandon Moss, who isn't a an obvious upgrade. Uh, I think a lot of people didn't like the Josh Donaldson trade, and they didn't they didn't like this move. So uh, the A's have had an off season that I think uh, 
if you didn't know Billy Bean was the GM, you would you would think that maybe he wasn't so smart after all. Right. Well, there, there was a I, th- I believe writing up one of those trades, you said that you did not necessarily want to indulge in an appeal to authority. Is that right? right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we should assume that everything Billy Bean does is genius just because he's done a lot of good things. I mean, he still makes mistakes. Right. But it would seem as though that because these are three unusual trades, is there? I mean, is there anything that's binding them together uh, thematically? Well, I think Brandon Moss is uh, essentially the kind of fallout of the signing of Billy Butler. I think you can kind of see these moves as one big move that took you know a month apart. Uh, but Butler was essentially brought in to uh, maybe provide a little bit more lineup balance and uh, get another right-handed hitter in the lineup. And that essentially forced Moss out of the picture. Uh, when they signed Butler, they basically just created a logjam at their first base DH spots. Uh, and I think Moss making $7 million uh, was the logical one to go. Uh, you would have thought maybe he could have brought a better return than this, but uh, I think if you if you simply look at it and say the A's wanted to get a little more right-handed and a little bit younger, uh, which are you know, things that they've uh, suggested publicly that they were their goals this offseason, uh, then Moss is essentially the... Uh, the cost of acquiring Billy Butler. Okay. So, uh, so Brandon Moss will become a Clevelander and will, what, is there a left-handed DH or something like that? Probably first base DH, maybe play a little bit of outfield depending on his hip. I think that's kind of the big key with Moss. And you could, you know, if you were looking to say, you know, what are the A's doing? They're the team who has the most amount of medical information on a 31-year-old who just had hip surgery. Uh, you know, there's a chance that Moss might just be a DH going forward and his time in the outfield is over. Uh, but I think if the Indians are optimistic that he's recovered, there's a chance that he could be uh, an okay defensive outfielder and, and maybe a useful first baseman. Moss has had, uh, of course, he, well, I should say he had, he participated in a very entertaining interview with our Eno Saris and uh, Adam Dunn as well. Um, that was a, that was a, real, a lot of fun. That was appeared in the site a couple months ago. Uh, Moss has had a strange career. I don't think that uh, he was really, he did much in the major leagues until, <laughs> what, his mid to late 20s? Uh, yeah, right around his 29th birthday. I think the thing that was most uh, widely discussed in the in the piece that you referenced uh, was Moss uh, famously getting told by Ruben Amaro, or at least seeing Amaro say publicly that he they didn't think he could hit a fastball. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just they didn't evaluate him as having enough bat speed to catch up with major league velocity. And then as a big leaguer, that's basically all Brandon Moss has done is hit fastballs and has been uh, quite prone to uh, breaking balls and off-speed pitches. Kind of the classic traditional slugger uh, archetype. Uh, but, you know, I think there is some uh, maybe validity to the fact that Moss was never a scout guy and never a guy who looked like he was going to turn into what he's been the last few years. Now, that's it. I remarked, uh, I guess, to myself, or I noticed at the, at the time, and you just brought it up here, the idea that um, the fact that Amaro did make a sort of specific comment about a player, sort of a, a scouting-type comment, is it? Do you feel like that's frequent, that, that a, a GM or a manager will say something – that's that is more specific. Like, yeah, we're we're not sure that he can hit a major league fastball. Yeah, you don't see comments like that too often, and I think that you generally don't see negative comments from players. You might hear positive things where we, you know, the team signs a guy and says, you know, we really think that, uh, you know, like Nick Markakis is an above average defender. They'll make some specific comment about a player's skills that they've just acquired. But you, for you know. PR and human relations reasons, it's not generally a great idea to go on the record and be like, here's a flaw of a player either in our organization or that we might acquire in the future, and you're not allowed to talk about other teams' players. So uh, certainly a, t- a GM's not going to go on and be like, that guy's shortstop has no range. Like, that's uh, not allowed, but the the rules of the league and also just, uh, you know, doesn't really 
serve any real purpose. Right. But and yet he did it nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Ruben Amaro does a lot of things that probably serve no purpose, or at least <laughs> don't serve the purpose of helping the Phillies win. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So okay. So Amaro, and then the Joey Wendell part of the trade. Do Do you have a sense? Is this a a player who? Um, about whom the Oakland is very excited, or do you have a sense that they're like they have a list of players that they you know that Cleveland will trade them and they say yeah give us Joey Wendell I guess <laughs> I mean probably a little bit of both I would assume that if they could have gotten a better prospect than Joey Wendell they would have made some other trade uh, my guess is that uh, you know especially since it's been out there for about a week that this deal was you know on the verge of being done any team who's like no I want to have Brandon Moss and I have a better prospect offer. I could have called Billy Bean and been like, don't trade him for Joey Wendell. I'll give you something uh, like a real prospect. I think there is probably some uh, more optimism in the A's organization about Wendell as a player. I think you know, if you traditionally look at this kind of player type of a you know fringy defensive middle infielder with a you know pretty decent bat who's got some power, uh, you know this is the kind of guy like Tommy Listella that you've been quite high on uh, relative to scouts, and scouts, I think, traditionally have missed on this kind of player a decent amount. And I don't think it's a, a big stretch to think that Wendell maybe turns into, you know, a Kelly Johnson-type player or someone in this ilk, who, you know, uh, Marcus Giles, one of these guys who's like, you know, maybe an average second baseman for a couple of years before he, you know, falls apart because of his lack of physical skills. Uh, and the A's certainly need middle infield depth. So I think they could look at Wendell as a guy who maybe scouts are missing on and is an undervalued prospect, but even still, I would assume that they uh, probably realize that he's undervalued uh, because this kind of player is not super hard to find. Uh, and if they wanted to, they could have, you know, if they were really uh, in on this kind of player, they could have gone after Lestella or signed Dean Anna or, you know, any number of the similar types of prospects who scouts right. don't love who offer some kind of potential. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. Well, that's, yeah, that's that deal, and uh, I guess it's been consummated. Do you have a sense um, if, if Cleveland... One advantage for Cleveland here, right, is that if uh, Brandon Moss has a has a huge year, they they will have uh, uh, means to to re-sign him, to extend him, something like this. Yeah, I mean they get a couple years of team control, but I think the problem is Moss is already getting a little bit expensive because he's uh, he majors in the things that arbiters pay. Uh, so I think if Moss has a big year, then he's probably looking at like an eleven or twelve million dollar arbitration payday next year. He's starting to price himself out of the Indians' plans a little bit. So uh, I don't think Moss is going to be any kind of bargain. And I think realistically, aging player with old player skills coming off a hip injury, we probably shouldn't expect Moss to have a big year. He's probably, you know, a average-ish player with some injury risk, uh, mm-hmm. which makes him a nice little addition for the Indians. But, you know, maybe not that different from Mike Davis or Adam Lind or some of these other guys who have been essentially given away by their teams at even lesser salaries. You know, it also seems as though, with regard with regard to Oakland, that both uh, I've read that both Scott Casimir and Jeff Schmarja are both uh, candidates to be traded this offseason as well. Well, I think if you're on the A's, you're a candidate to be traded. <laughs> like I think everyone on that roster could potentially be moved. Uh, Samarja, I think, is an interesting name simply because the A's paid so much to get him a few months ago, and if you're trading him for young talent. Uh, Maybe it would indicate that there's a little bit of a you know rebuild going on, or that they regret their their going for it move. But I think when you look at the Josh Donaldson trade, you know they they clearly prioritized getting a major league player back in Brett Laurie. And my guess would be if they make a Samarja trade, it's probably going to look more like that than a you know a guy for a, a series of prospects in A ball or something. My guess would be if they use Samarja, it will be to land them themselves a big league shortstop, uh, and then maybe some future pieces along with that. 
so, you know, the White Sox are a rumored destination for Samarja. Maybe Alexi Ramirez is coming back uh, to fill the A's shortstop hole, and then they'll get some, some prospects along with that, and they'll look at it and say, you know, Samarja's a 3-4 to four win pitcher. Maybe Ramirez is a 2-3 to three win shortstop. We don't get that much worse in the short term, and we add some long-term value. Right. Uh, a player who was a, who was in, with Oakland at the end of the season is Jason Hamill. He has also just today, I think, perhaps agreed to what a, a two-year, twenty million dollar deal, something like this. Yeah, it was originally reported as two eighteen, but there's a two million dollar buyout on the third year, so it's either going to be two twenty or three twenty-seven or something like that. Okay. I, even when they've been bad in recent years, uh, Chicago has still spent some money on starting pitchers. I think, right? Uh, well, they've given they give money at one point to Scott Feldman, and they give money to Edwin Jackson. Yeah, Scott Baker. Uh, they've taken kind of, uh, and Hamill fits this category. They've kind of made a habit over the last few years of finding some kind of undervalued, sometimes injury-prone guy uh, and giving him five or six million bucks, let him pitch fairly well, and then flipped him at the deadline for prospects. Uh, that's how they, you know, with Feldman, it got them Jake Arrieta, and it's turned out to be a fairly uh, you know, reasonable way to, to build their rotation and, and, uh, collect assets for the trade deadline. Uh, with Hamill signing a two-year deal, my guess is that's not necessarily the plan this time around. I think the Cubs are looking at trying to win in the short term. Maybe not, uh, win it all this year. Maybe, you know, 2016 is a more realistic bet for a real championship contender, but I think they're trying to add assets, uh, to make a real playoff run and, and they see Hamill as a, you know, a relatively cheap number four, number five starter. Right. Well, and that's what I was going to ask. I, I, do you do you sense that because of the the graduation or the near graduation of a lot of their top prospects to the major league club that the Cubs are going to be and th- maybe this as you say this this deal for Hamill is indicative of that the Cubs are going to be shifting their strategies a little bit in terms of who they're adding who they're who they're attempting to trade or let go to free agency. Yeah, I mean I think we're probably past the stage where the Cubs are continually looking for you know, minor league talent and are looking for, you know, buy low guys who could help them in a couple of years. I think, you know, they, they would take as many Jake Arrietas as they can get, but they're probably not looking to load up on, uh, you know, guys who are three or four years away from contributing. I think the Cubs are, are shifting their model and we see them pursuing John Lester as a free agent. And, uh, if they lose out on Lester, I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, turn their attention to maybe James Shields or Max Scherzer. I think they're going to go after a, a big name pitcher uh, to front their rotation uh, because they're trying to move their timeline up. And I think this is one of the interesting things we've seen in baseball the last couple of years. Nobody wants to lose anymore. <laughs> you know, the Padres are going after Matt Kemp and Justin Upton, and they threw, uh, you know, a big offer at Pablo Sandoval. And uh, even, you know, the, basically besides the Phillies and maybe the Astros, and the Astros were reportedly making runs at Andrew Miller and David Robertson, uh, everyone in baseball thinks they're at least on the fringes of contention, and no one is just punting it in and saying, you know, we're going to lose 100 games and be okay with it. Right. Uh, well, and, of course, we, we know you've, we've discussed this in the context of the Royals. It's not necessarily just because of the Royals, but there does seem to be some sense that um, that being, uh, being in contention every year or something like contention might be a, a better policy uh, than attempting to sort of – attempting to rebuild – with a target date, with a real year in mind that you're going to be the best team in the league? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, teams have maybe looked at the financial um, situations of the A's and the Indians and the Rays, of three teams who kind of have traditionally gone through these rebuild cycles where they would win for a while and then lose for a while and win for a while. And, you know, whether it's a cause and effect or just, a you know, maybe a, a factor of the marketplace they're in, 
all of them have, you know, low revenue situations that are not attended particularly well. They don't have big television deals that can allow them to run large payrolls. I think, you know, in this day and age where cable companies are throwing large amounts of money at baseball teams who put a real product on the field, there's probably a financial incentive to not be atrocious and to not torture fan base. And I think what we see with the Astros where they were running, you know, 0.1 ratings in their market and, you know, their, their regional sports network went bankrupt. Uh, I think teams look at that and say, maybe this isn't the best plan forward, even if we're stockpiling talent. Maybe we're better off being a, you know, 500 team who doesn't have as good of prospects, but we have a $50 million TV deal instead of a $10 million TV deal. Do you, do you mind when, when the ownership changed hands and Ed Wade was dismissed from the GM job in Houston, was there another strategy that Lunell could have taken or the organization could have taken? Or is it, do you really think there is a case where a franchise can just be scorched to the point where the, a rebuild is the only option? Well, I think, you know, the, the Astros weren't going to win no matter what the, uh, what Lou Now and his team did, but there are levels of losing, right? Like, you can say I'm a non-contender and you can be 75 and 87 or 70 and 92, or you can say I'm a non-contender like the Astros and be 50 and 110. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, uh, the Astros didn't even attempt to put a major league product on the field for a couple of years. Uh, you know, widely criticized for, um, kind of just going as cheap as possible. At one point, I think after they traded Eric Bedard a couple years ago, their highest paid player made nine hundred thousand uh, dollars, and their team payroll was like twelve million bucks in a you know a sport where the revenues are nine billion dollars. Uh, you know <laughs> they've certainly come up now, and they're bidding on major league players. And I wouldn't be surprised if the commissioner's office you know chided them for their strategy a couple years ago. Uh, but I think you know, there's a there's a cost to be paid for telling your fan base that we're not even trying, right. and the Astros are paying that price. Right, okay. Uh, so it's a Cubs, a Cubs deal, uh, Jason Hamill. We, uh, who, oh, uh, Andrew, shall we look at Andrew Miller? Uh, sure, he's kind of ugly, but we can. I don't, he's not that bad. He's tall and gangly. He is, yeah, he is He is a little bit silly. Uh, no, listen, arms and legs going everywhere kind of guy. I, I think that uh, at one point in his past, Andrew Miller was a a sort of top prospect. Is that the case? That is the case. When he pitched in North Carolina, uh, I went and watched him pitch several times, and uh, I was a big fan. Uh, mm-hmm. At one point, I think I compared him to a left-handed Roy Halladay okay. and uh, said that I think in the 2006 draft is the one he was eligible. I said he was by far the player I would have taken number one overall uh, if if I had the selection. Uh, and there were some other pretty good players in that draft who made that that comment look silly in retrospect. Yeah, right. Uh, although it should be noted that Luke Hochaver was selected first in that uh, draft, and Greg Reynolds was selected second uh, together. Well, let's say they haven't put together um, large MLB resumes or very impressive ones. Right. I think the Greg Reynolds pick was a disaster. Uh, but it was kind of known at the time, and, and I think was a signability pick because the Rockies were cheap. Right, right, right. Uh, of course, Evan Longoria was selected third. Yeah, yeah. He, he's been pretty good. Right, he has been pretty good. Casey Kiker is also on that list. Casey, yeah. I remember that name. Yeah, one of the, the many failed Rangers prospects. Yeah, vaguely racist name. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so Miller was selected sixth in that draft, though. And yes. I'm curious if this is... so. If this is maybe the advantage of top pitching prospects, right, is that I think it's pretty clear that Andrew Miller's uh, life as a starter did not work out for one reason or another. Yeah, his elbow hurt and he lost his velocity. The last time in college he was 97 to 99, and then in the pros he was 89 to 92. (laughs) Big difference. Right. Uh, But now, but he has been, he has been so good as a, as a relief pitcher 
Well, he's been he's been quite good over the last couple of years, and this last year he was. I mean, he was essentially he was Kenley Jansen. He was, um, you know, he was he was sort of in that in the same sentence. As as those guys you think of as the elite closers, or the, you know, elite, yeah, elite closers, elite relievers. Yeah, he's basically a relief ace. I think if you were to name the best dozen relievers or so in baseball, you'd have to include Andrew Miller. Right, uh, and his uh, and do we know when that happened? Was there a time specifically? Was it was it just as easy as sending him to the bullpen, or is there something a little bit more? Well, he'd been right? in the bullpen for a little while, and he didn't have very good command. He was kind of a lefty specialist guy who, uh, you know, he was tall and threw from a low arm slot, so you know he was pretty good against left-handers and not so good against right-handers. Uh, and then I think as Jeff Sullivan wrote maybe last week or so, uh, you know, over the last couple of years he's changed his arm slot a little bit and he's become more of a, a overall relief pitcher rather than a specialist. Uh, you know, is uh, still still primarily a fastball slider guy, but just uh, raising the arm slot a little bit so where he's not quite so much sidearm drop down uh, gives him a little bit of a, a better angle against right-handed batters. And now that he can get both righties and lefties out, uh, it doesn't have to be used in a one batter specialist role. And he's also throwing more strikes. I mean, I think that's the kind of the big thing is he always struck a lot of guys out, but his walk rates were 12, 13, 14%. Last year it was 6 or 7%. So uh, when you're pounding the zone with really good stuff, uh, makes it a lot more easy, uh, a lot easier to be successful. Okay, so the contract is with New York is for four, four years, thirty-six million. Is that about right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, where does this sort of fit in in the uh, uh, the landscape of recent relief contracts? Well, it's huge for non-closers. I mean, I think if you look at what other setup guys have gotten, generally they've been in the five to six million range for three years. Uh, I think Jeremy Affelt at three eighteen. Uh, Basically, you know, any Giants reliever, I think. Yeah, right? the Giants. Uh, giants have been paying premiums for non-closer relievers for a few years. Um, it should be known they've won. They've won some they've, World Series. Yeah, as well. exactly. It's worked out fairly well for yeah. them. Uh, and I think this is one of the things where major league teams are starting to realize that you know, yeah, seventh inning, eighth inning guys are just as valuable, or can be just as valuable as ninth inning guys if they're really good. There's no real reason why you need to pay a huge premium for saves. Uh, so I think what we see with the Yankees is kind of taking a little bit of a hard line on David Robertson and saying, you're not really that much better than Andrew Miller, not better than him at all, really, just because you pitched the ninth inning. If you want $15 million a year because you got saves, we'll take this guy for $9 million a year uh, who didn't get saves and we'll be just as well off. And I, I saw us at some point, I saw Joel Sherman, is he a writer, a baseball he, writer? He, he is, yes. He uh, he said it was, uh, he, he hadn't heard from anyone, it was a hunch However, that the Yankees might attempt to use Miller and uh, Dylan Betances in a in a sort of tandem closing role. Yeah, I think uh, over the last couple of years, I think maybe a decade ago, it was really taboo to do closer by committee. I think oh. when the Red Sox tried this in yes, it was two thousand six or something with Keith Folk and a few other guys. Maybe Byung uh, Young Byung Young yeah, Kim. Right, it was a debacle, and uh, the writers jumped all over them. But quietly over the last few years, a lot of teams have moved to this model. I think the Rays with Jake McGee and Joel Peralta and a few others uh, have successfully used kind of matchup closers lately. Uh, and a lot of teams have kind of moved away from the one guy ninth inning role, especially, uh, you know, lower revenue teams and have said, you know, we've got three or four pretty good arms now that everyone in baseball can throw 98 miles an hour. Why do I need to, you know, just give this to one guy? And I, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a trend over the next few years where, you know, middle relievers or guys who have traditionally been evaluated as middle relievers see their salaries go up and they get some save chances. And, uh, you know, we see fewer and fewer of these kind of Mariano Rivera types who own the ninth inning and, and protect every three-run lead. Right. And uh, now, now you, you mentioned that it's been a, it's a strategy that's been employed in certain smaller markets. Uh, New York obviously is not that. 
do you have a sense that there's a it's a it's it, it's going to prove to be a field day for writers if it does not succeed? Yeah, but I don't think it's a very easy story, right? I think that's one of the things. It's like a super easy deadline piece of as soon as Dylan Batansis or Andrew Miller blow a save, someone in New York is going to be like, well, I, I need a thousand words tomorrow. I'm going to write about how neither one of these is a proven closer. And uh, it basically is a story that writes itself. Right. So uh, I don't think there's any question that if you go with this kind of strategy, you are opening yourself up to criticism when it doesn't work out. The nice thing is both Batansis and Andrew Miller are really freaking good. So if you think that these guys are going to you know, blow maybe a half dozen saves between them all year, you only have to deal with the story like three or four times. <laughs> and the rest of the year, you're just like, whatever. Look, they have an ERA in the ones. Shut up. No, wait. Uh, is there, is there any, uh, what, what the hell was I going to say? Oh, it was a, it was a real intriguing question, Cameron. Well, I'll put that on the back burner. Uh, who, who else is, so how does this inform David Robertson's contract, I guess, with a reliever getting, uh, getting four years, $36 million? Well, I think Robertson will get more. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, as much as Miller is, uh, excellent, uh, his track record is not as long as Robertson's. Uh, Robertson is excellent in his own right and does have the closer premium label, uh, which might not be worth as much as it used to, but it's worth a little bit. Uh, so I would guess Robertson went into the offseason asking for Jonathan Papelman money, which was like 452. This probably helps him a little bit. If Miller is going to get 436, I think Robertson says, you know, there's no way he's going to settle for that. Maybe now, you know, the le- the least he would settle for is 448 or something. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up right around that $50 million mark on the same four-year deal that Andrew Miller got. Yeah, okay, so the thing with regard to John Papelbon, right, is um, he was paid a lot of money yeah. uh, for a relief pitcher. He was. And I, he really has – now, his his um, fielding independent numbers have not been fantastic necessarily, but he's prevented runs at roughly the same rate he did before he joined the Phillies. Yes. And the Phillies have simultaneous to that been terrible. <laughs> and have tried to give him away and no one wants him. Right. I think this is one of the things where people look at it and be like, oh – if Robertson's going to get the Pavelbon contract, then maybe the Pavelbon contract wasn't so bad after all. Forgetting the $52 million four years ago, not the same thing as it is today. We've seen a lot of inflation in baseball over the last few years. Uh, the Jonathan Pavelbon contract of four years ago probably translates into 60 or 70 or, you know, maybe even $75 million in today's dollars. Uh, you know, Robertson getting that same amount four years later does not justify the Pavelbon deal. Okay. The, uh, uh, right, but yeah, so that's a strange thing with Pavelbon, right? He's been just as good, but also that doesn't mean that the contract was excellent. Yeah, and I think we see that, you know, in the Phillies' attempts to trade him. <laughs> Every time they put him on the market, the teams look at him and be like, meh, $13 million a year for a guy with an ERA in the mid-twos that gets a lot of saves, but is, you know, declining peripherals and, you know, a little bit of a uh, an interesting personality. We would rather go pay multiple years to a free agent instead. Yeah, okay. Uh, and let's see, we also have not, uh, we have not addressed Nick Markakis. Uh, uh, we have not. No, we have not addressed Nick, but that happened, that's also happened within the past week. It happened last Thursday, yeah. I feel. Yeah. My boy, does it merits attention? It does, because it's a strange signing. It's a strange signing because, in, I don't know if it was it you or Sullivan or someone else who made the point that if you, are just looking at the, the stat lines, or if you you know if you're doing some there's there's ways in which you could say okay Nick Markikis, uh, non-traditional right fielder in that he has not hit for power, gets on base, and is an above average right fielder by reputation. Jason Hayward, non-traditional in the sense that he gets on base, doesn't necessarily have a lot of power, but is considered to be an above average right fielder. You could say oh they're very similar. 
Yeah, and I think that's kind of how the Braves spun this uh, after the after the deal was announced. Is well, we traded Jason Hayward, and then we got Jason Hayward to replace him. So you know, good for us. We got Shelby Miller, and we saved a whole bunch of money, and at least long term versus signing Jason Hayward. Um, I think what we would suggest is that Nick Marquez is not a very good defensive outfielder. Uh, and I think you know, as I wrote last week when the, when the deal was announced. This deal basically comes down to how much weight you will put on UZR, DRS, kind of the modern advanced defensive metrics that are publicly available. Uh, the Braves seemingly say they're putting zero emphasis on those numbers. Um, I think as much as people like to be skeptical of, of defensive metrics and say they're imperfect, 12,000 innings of Nick Marquez's career, uh, you know, behind a handful of pitching staffs with a handful of, uh, you know, rotating uh, scores from different uh, companies, uh, all grading them out basically the same way, it's very, very unlikely that Nick Markakis's defensive numbers are systematically biased against him, and he's actually a very good defensive right fielder that the numbers have missed on. More likely is that he's just a player that scouts overrate because he doesn't make errors and he has a really good arm. And I think we've traditionally seen that this is the kind of player that uh, – you know, is not as good defensively as, as scouts think. And my guess is that the Braves are going to watch him play every day and say, hmm, that's a bummer. <laughs> um, it, it should be noted with, with your point, and you, you might have sort of hinted at this, but with regard to what we, what we might call a, um, a difference of opinion or, um, or a, a, the question marks surrounding the defensive metrics relative to how the Atlanta front office is assessing Marquegas's defense. It would it would appear it's not a question merely of how much you regress the defensive metrics, right? And that was one of the that was one of the points that you and Jeff Bassan I think had one of the points of contention. I think Jeff would favor more regression on the defensive numbers because he's not comfortable with them accounting for that much of a player's value. I think you would say, well, yeah, maybe maybe a little bit more regression. Maybe Alex Gordon is not 20 runs better than his left field peers. Uh, but I think you were sort of both on board with the fact that if you have a large enough sample, then it, it, you know, it's meaningful to some degree. Whereas this is not just a question of how much we should regress Nick Marquez's defensive numbers because they are, because the, basically all the systems we had have been, have been negative on him. Right. I think yeah, this is the thing is like people like to say, oh man, you need, you know, large samples of defensive data before you can make any kind of conclusions. And so, you know, you shouldn't use, uh, or shouldn't put too much weight on a single year UZR DRS. With Marquez, we have a decade of the of the sample that basically all says the same thing. Uh, where there's no real argument that you need to regress 12,000 innings all that heavily. There's just not a lot of data out there that suggests that over this kind of sample, the information is going to be systematically biased in a way that would, uh, you know, harm Marquez or um, misevaluate his skills. In order to argue that Marquez is an above-average defender, you essentially have to argue that these systems are completely useless. Not that they're kind of flawed, not that their range is maybe too large, or uh, that you need to, you know, have large samples before you can draw conclusions. The argument has to be that they're totally and utterly wrong and right. just completely broken. I don't, I don't think that you can actually defend that position uh, because, uh, you know, the interesting thing is the people who say. I don't want to look at these defensive numbers. I just want to evaluate them by what I see. Ignore the fact that these defensive numbers are compiled by people who watch every single play. They literally are a record of people watching the games and watching every single play, multiple people watching every play in baseball, recording the data from what they see. This isn't some, you know, computer algorithm based on, you know, hit location, uh, you know, tracked by a mouse. This is 
human beings watching the plays and saying this is where the ball was hit. They watch every play. Uh, the people who say I don't trust these metrics, I just want to watch use my eyes, do not watch every play. So it's we're essentially saying we want to exchange the uh, the eye test of uh, numerous individuals watching every play for the eye test of one individual watching some plays. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you know, you made a, a point, now, and I've, you've invoked this uh, this idea before uh, when we're attempting to assess or measure defensive value. Um, that essentially comes down to about 50 plays a year. Yeah. Right. The, the, this you could have uh, um, hundreds of plays over the course of a season. You have, many of them are routine. Many of them are impossible. Um, and so what we're doing is we're we're looking at uh, this fielder on how well he does in these 50 plays. It finally clicked with me as th- this is why it takes so long to regress because if you had just if you th- if you thought about a player who just had 50 plate appearances in yeah. one season, and you know maybe he struck out uh, fif- you know 15% of the time, you'd say well it's slightly above average. At the same time, it's only 50 plate appearances, even though that's a stat that uh, regresses or you know becomes stable pretty quickly. You still say. Eh. I don't want to say – I don't want to make uh, any very um, assertive comments about this player's ability to to make contact because uh, it's only 50 players. So really that's – so essentially it's like samples of 50 is what we're really looking at each season. Yeah, and I mean I think we, we can see that uh, defensive performance probably does fluctuate a little less than offensive performance because there are fewer variables involved with how far this guy can run and how fast. So, you know, maybe the equivalent sample of 50 defensive chances is 100 or 150 plate appearances, something mm-hmm. along those lines. Mm-hmm. But even then, that's basically like a month's worth of playing time, right? Like we see all the time guys are really good in April and terrible in May and awful in June. And we don't look at it and say, well, like offensive statistics are flawed because look at this wild variation uh, when people do look at the year-to-year defensive numbers and make that conclusion uh, because of how much they jump around. And then this is one of the reasons why we suggest you want multiple years of de- uh, defensive data to draw strong conclusions because after a couple of years, you might have 100 or 150 or 200 plays that really kind of give us an example of, uh, you know, how well the player covered some ground. Uh, you know, a couple hundred plays might be enough to start to learn something, especially, uh, you know, with a really fast guy or a really slow guy who's at the extreme end of, of, of one range or the other. Um, you know, I think in general, when dealing with samples this size, uh, you want to be careful and say, you know, I'm going to draw slow conclusions until I have a large sample. With Markakis and, and Alex Gordon and some of these guys, we're beyond that point. We have really large samples now. Right. Uh yeah, you've almost certainly uh, fulfilled your obligation. Uh, we didn't discuss D.D. Gregorius. He's going to play shortstop for the Yankees. Uh, he is. All right. So, all right. We have now discussed it. Yeah. Um, I, th- I will say the most interesting part of that trade now, I think, is Shane Green. Wait. I was going to say that, too, because Shane Green was was quite good last year. So I will say, like, going into the trade, I looked at it as like, oh, the Yankees gave up a back-end starter with little upside. And then, uh, you know, Brandon McCarthy, who's, uh, you know, pitched for Shane Green in New York last year, uh, made a very public pr- pronunciation that he's a big Shane Green fan uh, and really liked his stuff and, and thought that he's being dramatically underrated. And then I think Ken Rosenthal quoted a scout who said that Shane Green reminds him of Doug Fister, which is actually not a terrible comparison. If you look at like a kind of journeyman prospect who came up through the minors and didn't really do anything, got to the big leagues, pitched pretty well, no one really bought into it. If Green's changeup improved as much as McCarthy is suggesting, uh, and he's a guy who throws 93 or 94 with a decent breaking ball, maybe the Tigers got a, a mid-rotation starter instead of a back-end guy, and all of a sudden this looks like a fantastic deal for them. Right. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about we, the winter meetings have begun. I think they began you know, last night, maybe sometime or yesterday, sometime uh, Sunday. That is. They go for a couple more days. 
What has been the track record of deals being made during the winter meetings? Um, and then, uh, you know, what should we expect specifically? Well, I think uh, usually there's like one or two big moves that happen during the, the winter meetings. This year it's probably going to be the John Lester signing. Uh, I think he's expected to sign either by the time you put this podcast up or not too long afterwards. Uh, so I think the Lester deal is probably going to be the big one of the winter meetings, barring a Matt Kemp trade. I think that could also happen this week. Uh, that could kind of be like the big blockbuster trade uh, if the Padres or Mariners or Orioles or one of these teams that are reportedly interested uh, pony up and meet the Dodgers' demands. Uh, historically, though, I think the meetings are generally a little anticlimactic in that a lot of the stuff doesn't happen during the day. It happens at 2 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> so people sit around writing all day and waiting for stuff to happen, and then when you know they go get drunk, and then stuff happens. Oh yeah, this that happened to you. Uh, not, not the drunk part, yeah. right? But you uh, you were involved in sort of a late night deal at some point. Well, I think the Carl Crawford deal happened a few years ago at like one thirty in the morning, right, right. Uh, and I was uh, uh, enjoying some conversations with some Boston writers who had had a few alcoholic beverages at the time and, and watching their reactions when Crawford uh, <laughs> signed with Boston as they were inebriated and hoping to go to bed was kind of humorous. Right. <clears throat> All right. So, so uh, Lester, we should expect it. There, there's a. Are there, is there a specific team yet? Uh, a collection of teams. I think it's basically down to the Giants, Red Sox, Dodgers, and Cubs. Okay. Um, my guess is that it's going to end up uh, choosing between the Red Sox, who he has some affinity for, and the highest bidder. It sounds like maybe the Red Sox won't be the high bidder. Uh, maybe the Giants or Cubs or Dodgers will, you know, put another five or ten or fifteen million dollars on the table. And the question will be whether Lester wants to take a little bit of a discount to go back to Boston. Okay. All right. Uh, you've done a great job. You've done a great job, Dave Cameron. Thanks. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.